millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. So he was 38 years old when he was murdered, and that's just, it's just taken too soon. And, and it's kind of really had a, like our family is a very small family anyway. We have relatives in Europe, but we hardly ever see them. So here in Canada, you know, it's basically just the five of us. And if you lose one, you've lost a big portion of the family, you know. And and with everything that happened, I basically feel like I've lost everyone. And maybe the RCMP figured, well, you know... <laughs> getting justice for him it's not going to make a big impact on a large number of people you know it's just me but but that's not that doesn't count that's not enough you still have to go after it and you know life was taken and brutally too In the early morning hours of July 4, 2006, a 38-year-old man sat in his work truck enjoying the air conditioning on what was a hot summer night. Several assailants approached the man from behind. He was shot, beaten, and stabbed. He died at the scene. It was obvious that every aspect of this murder was planned and premeditated. Three years later, a trial occurred, but the case quickly fell apart leading to an acquittal. Sixteen years later, a family continues to be victimized by a system that seems to have given up on their murdered loved one. Tonight, we present the unsolved murder of Peter Schnellhart, and you are listening to True North True Crime. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of True North True Crime. Thanks for joining us. A big thank you to Eloise, Kimberly, Carla, Laura, Lisa, and two anonymous donors for buying us coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TNTCpod. We really appreciate it, and we're grateful for your donation. 
True North True Crime is an independent podcast bringing attention to the stories of missing people and victims of violent crimes. We are a two-person team building these episodes from start to finish. We do take suggestions for episodes and prioritize cases that come to us directly from family members or close contacts. If you have a case for us, feel free to reach out at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. Okay, let's get into tonight's episode. Tonight we're talking about the unsolved murder of Peter Schnellhart. Peter was a 38-year-old man living and working in Williams Lake, British Columbia. Although there was a trial, no one has been held responsible for Peter's murder. There is a lot of controversy and strange happenings in this case that will take us some time to unravel in the episode. We put this episode together using very few resources. There are only a handful of articles out there about Peter's murder, and the documents from his murder trial are sealed under a publication ban. However, we did find some court documents that tie into this case. Due to the publication ban and the hopes of a new trial, we are going to be changing some names in this episode to protect the integrity of the investigation. We spoke at length with Peter's sister, Petra Bunn, who has been fighting very hard to find justice for her brother for 16 years. We're very grateful to Petra for trusting us with this story. If you are in any of the Facebook groups um, for Trina Hunt or Lisa Marie Young, you will know who Petra is. She supports other families that are trying to navigate the justice system in the aftermath of a family member's murder. Petra also runs her own Facebook group called Justice for Peter Schnellhart, She has a website called PeterSchnellhardMurder.com. We will link both of those in our show notes. As an additional content warning, this episode deals with a graphic description of a murder. There are also references to sexual assault and animal cruelty. Please take care of yourself if you choose to listen to this episode. The Schnellhart family has a story similar to many Canadian families. The Schnellhart family immigrated from Germany to Canada in the late 1950s. Gerhardt, the father of the family, arrived first in 1959 in Minto, New Brunswick. He brought specialized coal mining equipment with him and demonstrated it to a local mining company. They were impressed and offered him employment. Gerhardt sent for his wife Ingrid and his five-year-old daughter Petra. They arrived in Canada in 1961. After a few years, the Schnellharts would add two boys to their family, Gerhardt Jr., or Gary as he was known, and Peter. Here is Petra, Peter's sister, talking about their childhood. And we moved to Canmore, Alberta, when Peter was about a year old. Um, And there he had a great childhood. Um, He raised rabbits, like we had rabbits all over our yard all the time. Some of them escaped and they're still running around Canmore. But uh, yeah, he he and his brother Gary uh, went skiing in Banff a lot because Camar and Banff are right next to each other. Um, and they uh, rode motorbikes in the hills and ski-doos and, you know, um, just just had a lot of fun. Um, 
uh, he he learned to build things from my dad, um, who was very handy, like he could build pretty much anything. And he was also um, very experienced with uh, car engines and truck engines. And, and he taught all of that to the two boys. And um, he was a really on hands-on kind of dad, you know, and his boys were really everything to him. My dad, he was a trucker, uh, like I said, which... Um, uh, my brother Peter also went into later on in life. Um, um, my brother was uh, a nice guy, and uh, he, uh, yeah, I, I miss him a lot. So the Schnellhard family moved to Canmore, Alberta. Their father worked as a truck driver, and the sons grew up with a very outdoor lifestyle. But they were also very skillful with regards to car engines and truck engines. Eventually, Peter moved to Calgary, and it seemed that the rest of the family followed. As Peter became an adult, he worked jobs as a heavy-duty mechanic and a truck driver. Eventually, he bought a house. And from all accounts, he loved that house. He built a shop and a deck onto the house all by himself with his own hands. He was in a relationship at the time with a woman that he really loved. But sadly, that relationship started to have some problems. Peter and his partner broke up, and Peter was heartbroken. Sadly for Peter, this is when a new person came into his life, when he was at a very low point. And this quickly became a romantic relationship. This woman quickly moved in with Peter. Peter's sister Petra, with the power of hindsight, now knows that this person was not good for Peter. In fact, the relationship was abusive. We will not be naming this person in the episode, but we will be referring to her as Tammy. Like I said, he was a nice guy. He had a lot of friends. Um, But then I moved to Calgary and uh, my parents followed and then the two boys did as well and so uh then we were kind of all living together there uh, in calgary and uh my brother was uh really nice looking uh he had um a nice smile and nice eyes and he, like i said he's friendly and he's kind and he's hard working and um so he moved away like from the parents home basically and bought a house uh, he had met a girl and he was in a long kind of term relationship with her a couple years. Um, and then, uh, like I said, he bought the house and everything was going well. But then um, that relationship uh, kind of fell apart and he was heartbroken by that. Um, so he met uh, another uh, woman there kind of basically on the rebound. That's the way I saw it. Um, and, um, and, uh, they, they started, uh, going out and then she moved in. And, um, I would say that it wasn't very long after that, that, um, things really started falling apart. Um, things, it didn't look good. Like, um, my parents were noticing that, uh, bills weren't being paid and, uh, there was no food in the fridge and, you know, they were wondering what the heck is going on. Um, my brother was a pot smoker, uh, before, but I think that, um, she ended up bringing some heavier drugs into the relationship. And, um, so he ended up losing his house and he had uh, worked on that house. He, um, like I said, he renovated it himself and he built a garage in the back and built a deck on it. And like, you know, he was very hard worker and he cared about it. And then all of a sudden everything kind of went out the window and 
the he ended up losing the house to the bank and my parents were upset and they went over there and said well what was going on and he said well that he and this new woman were going to start a new life and uh, move to to BC you know kind of start over and uh, my parents were very unhappy with that and uh, they didn't like her obviously because of you know the change in him and the change in his living situation and and the day uh, before they actually left, uh, they noticed that my brother had a black eye and scratches on his face. And they asked him, well, you know, what happened? And he said, well, you know, she did that. Uh, he, um, they had broken up a couple of times before that. It wasn't a good relationship. And he was saying that he was afraid of her. He was afraid, afraid to sleep because he didn't know what she was going to do to him. And so they're going, well, why are you leaving with her? This is craziness. But I think that he kind of thought that if it kept her happy, it would be kind of okay. And maybe a new start would help. So off they went um, to, um, they ended up in Williams Lake, BC. So as we just heard from Petra, things began to collapse for Peter. He found himself heartbroken in a new abusive relationship using drugs and alcohol and losing his home all in a very short period of time. So it was the fall of 2004 that Tammy suggested that her and Peter move to Williams Lake. She had connections there and convinced Peter that it would be a good move. Peter, obviously hoping for a fresh start, agreed to the move. Peter's family did not agree with this move. They worried about Peter being so far away with someone like Tammy. As we've stated, the Schnellharts are a small, close, tight-knit family, so having Peter so far away felt like a bad idea. Peter went anyway against his family's wishes and made the move to Williams Lake. For those unfamiliar with Williams Lake, British Columbia, it's a city in the central Caribou region of the province. It has a population of about 11,000 people. The economy of the area relies heavily on the up and down cycles of the natural resource industry, including forestry, sawmills, and mining. While Williams Lake is surrounded with natural beauty, it has struggled with crime and violent crime. It has ranked 7th highest among small towns on a crime severity index in Canada. According to Petra, Peter tried to make the best of this move. While Tammy continued to live a more high-risk lifestyle, selling drugs and running with a rough crowd, Peter began working as a logging truck driver. At one point, he contacted his parents in Alberta to help him with the finances that he needed to change and upgrade his driver's license. Peter sent the family photos of him working with his new logging truck. This reassured the family that maybe things were going to work out for Peter. But then he stopped calling them, and the family lost contact with Peter for close to two years. They kind of lost contact with him, and my dad got quite ill and I was trying to contact him so I hired a PI to try to find them and send out messages in Williams Lake you know please contact us because you you know dad isn't well and uh, we never heard anything and I finally through that PI got a phone number and then so um, it was uh, about two years after they had 
moved there that my uh, parents finally got to talk to Peter. That was actually on the day that he was murdered. He was murdered later that night and they talked to him about 6 p.m. So later that night around midnight, he was he was murdered. And what he had to tell my parents uh, was very concerning. He said that uh, he and this uh, woman had split up, that he had broken it off with her. They had had some rough times that their um, mobile home had been torched uh, purposely and that his two dogs were killed, you know, during the fire and that they hadn't been home. And um, he said that there was a lot that he had to tell them um, and that he had gotten a new job and he was trying to get things going. He was a heavy-duty mechanic at United Concrete there in Williams Lake and that he was going to get his own place. And my parents were invited once he got a little more established to come visit and he would tell them a lot more about what was going on. And he also spoke to Gary, um, his brother, my brother, um, uh, that night and um, everything seemed good. And then the next day, my mom was um, talking to him or calling, trying to call him to talk to him. And his phone just rang and rang and rang. And it rang for the next couple of days. Now, due to the fact that Peter had lost contact with his family for nearly two years, putting together a timeline leading up to his murder has been difficult. But Petra has worked closely with private investigators and witnesses to fill in the blanks. This is what she's learned. Things with Tammy continued to escalate in the worst possible ways. According to Petra, Tammy continued to deal illegal narcotics and had brought on the wrath of some bad people. Those people torched Peter and Tammy's trailer to the ground, and sadly their dogs died in the blaze as well. Tammy and Peter again broke up. Peter was trying desperately to move away from Tammy, and during this time he reconnected with his ex-girlfriend in Alberta, the one who broke his heart. He had actually made plans to come visit her in Alberta. However, Tammy found out about those plans. In order to stop Peter from seeing his ex, Tammy stole his truck and refused to give it back to him. She was heard saying, if he wants to see his ex, he can take the Greyhound. So uh, they broke up, I don't know how many times, and he would try to kind of lock her out of the house and change the locks and stuff like that but she'd just break a window and be back in again and he just couldn't um he couldn't seem to get rid of her you know she was always back and then everything would be okay for a little while and then it wouldn't be again you know that kind of thing so it went on and on pretty much throughout the whole time that they were together um so then um in Williams Lake you know they I think that he had finally had enough um he was trying to work and she was dealing drugs and and that wasn't going very well and then there was this arson and you know it's just too much and so then um he um broke it off with her and then he thought he was okay, even though like she wouldn't give him any of his stuff back. So he pretty much had nothing. But, you know, even his truck, like she kept everything. Peter did eventually get away from Tammy. In fact, he landed a really great job. Peter became a heavy duty mechanic at United Concrete in Williams Lake. As a heavy duty mechanic, Peter would service the trucks at nighttime while they were idle. 
The company provided him with a pickup truck, and they also allowed him to park an RV on the worksite that Peter could live in while he got himself back on his feet from what was hopefully his last breakup with Tammy. That relationship lasted seven years. According to Petra, Tammy was not happy with any of this. This is when the conspiracy began. Tammy's minor-aged daughter had recently taken a trip to Williams Lake. Tammy used this as an opportunity to start a malicious rumor about Peter. According to the RCMP, Tammy told people that Peter had sexually assaulted her teenage daughter. This rumor has been proved to be untrue by the RCMP and the daughter herself. However, the conspiracy was set into motion. In Canadian prison culture, both in and out of prison, accusations of rape and child interference are used to incite and justify violence against a target. It goes without saying that sexual assault and child interference is abhorrent and should be completely condemned, and false accusations are exceedingly rare. Having said that, prison culture weaponizes these accusations to inflict physical harm or even death upon anyone who is accused. In UK prisons, the term for the sex offender is a nonce. In US prisons, it's a chomo. And in Canadian prisons, the term is goof. Anyone using these terms must be ready to back the words up with violence. Anyone called these terms must be ready to have their life forever changed. According to the Crown's evidence, Tammy conspired with two men to plot Peter's murder. One of these men we will be calling Mark for the sake of the episode. In 2006, Mark was 18 years old and living in Williams Lake. Mark had interactions with the legal system since he was a youth. Some of his charges included being caught with weapons, stolen goods, and illegal narcotics. At one point, he was given a 16-month sentence, of which he served four months. In 2006, Mark was tall and worked out quite a bit. The other man we will refer to as the Hitman. The Hitman was born in Kingston, Ontario in 1960 and lived in that province until 1964 when he moved to Saskatchewan. The Hitman dropped out of high school in grade 9 to work in construction in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. At age 18, he moved to BC and worked in a mill until he suffered a workplace accident that resulted in him losing three of his fingers on his right hand. The hitman has a criminal record stretching back to 1979, including possession of a narcotic for the purpose of trafficking and possession of a prohibited weapon. He also had a conviction for causing an animal to be in distress. He has an additional conviction for assault with a weapon in Saskatoon. He was also found to have breached a Correction Act regulation by assaulting another inmate while on remand. A court document regarding this man states... That while some of his crimes are old, he has been convicted of offenses involving weapons and violence, which indicates that he continues to have a propensity for violence and his risk to the community going forward has not lessened. Photos of the hitman show a stocky, balding man covered in prison-style tattoos. In 2006, he was 46 years old. So, with the aid of these two men, it was decided that Peter Schnellhart would be murdered. In the summer of 2006, the interior of British Columbia was experiencing a heat wave with daytime highs above 30 and 40 degrees Celsius. On July 3rd, Peter was scheduled to start his shift in the late night hours at the cement factory. That day was an important day. Peter spoke to his brother Gary for the first time in a long time, and then around 6 p.m., he spoke to his parents for the first time in almost two years. 
He expressed he was in a good place. He liked his new job. He liked where he lived and he felt that things were turning a corner. He also spoke about the abuse and chaos that he had endured with his relationship with Tammy. The phone call ended and later that night, Peter went to work. Around midnight, Peter was sitting in his work truck. It is assumed that he was sitting in there to enjoy the air conditioning and to cool down on a hot night. The truck was parked with the front pointing towards the front gate or the entrance to the worksite. Petra believes that he was waiting for someone and wanted to see them enter the job site. But what happened next, Peter did not see coming. Three assailants came up from behind Peter's truck on foot, armed with a gun. Peter was in the driver's seat looking through the front windshield. The assailants leveled the firearm and shot Peter in the head. The first shot shattered the driver's side window and broke Peter's jaw. Peter did not die. They shot him two more times and dragged him out of the truck. In all, Peter was shot twice in the head and once in the hand. Even though Peter was shot, he continued to fight. The younger man, Mark, began beating Peter over and over in the face and head with a large rock or piece of concrete. These blows would be fatal. Peter fell to the ground and the hitman pulled out a knife and slit Peter's throat. The two men then dragged Peter's body into a nearby ditch. Early the next morning, July 4th, 2006, a worker at United Concrete saw Peter's truck parked on the driveway. He noticed the shattered window. As he walked closer to the truck, he came across Peter's body in a ditch. Due to the physical damage from the beating, Peter was unrecognizable. In fact, the injuries that Peter suffered were so severe that it wasn't until his autopsy that they noticed that he had been shot. His injuries and the attack has been described by many as overkill. Peter Schnellhardt was pronounced dead that morning at just 38 years old. We are now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. And we are back. So before the break, we outlined the timeline leading up to the brutal murder of 38-year-old Peter Schnellhart. Now, Williams Lake is a small community, and Peter only had a few people in his life. An execution-style murder in a small town would seem like a solvable crime, but this would not be the case. One thing that Petra and her family noticed was that they had not heard a word from Tammy, a woman who was part of their extended family for seven years. She never called to offer her condolences to Peter's parents. 
Three years went by with no movement on this case. The Schnellhart family offered a $20,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of those involved in Peter's death, but no one came forward. At this point, according to Petra, Tammy did reach out to the family. She questioned why they would offer a reward and expressed negative feelings about the reward offer. A few months after Peter's death, Mark, the 18-year-old who allegedly participated in the murder, was beaten very badly in what is being called a drug deal gone bad. He suffered a brain injury and other physical injuries and is now a person who uses a power wheelchair. But Mark must have been feeling quite confident three years after Peter's murder because he reached out to an ex-girlfriend on Facebook and had some very interesting things to say about Peter's murder. The ex-girlfriend is referred to in court documents under a fake name. We will just refer to her as The Witness. Mark told The Witness, unprompted, that he was responsible for Peter's death. The following is from a Facebook Messenger exchange between Mark and The Witness. We have removed the hitman's name. Blank is a hitman, and we did Peter. At night, me and the hitman went to United Concrete and snuck up the back. Peter was in the truck and the hitman shot him in the head three times, but he didn't die and Peter came out of the truck. I kicked the shit out of him and when he was on the ground, the hitman cut his neck. The witness then took this information that she had learned to the RCMP. The RCMP authorized a wiretap in order for the witness to record conversations with Mark. The RCMP, of course, had concerns about Mark's brain injury, so they asked the witness to ask him many memory-based questions over and over again to test his cognition. He was able to answer all sorts of questions about pet names, dates, phone numbers, and that type of thing. Here's what Petra knows about the conversations between Mark and the witness. His um, previous girlfriend contacted him to see how he was doing because she had heard, you know, about what happened to him. And it was during that time that he confessed to her that he had been involved in my brother's murder. Uh, So then she decided to go to the RCMP uh, and tell them what he had told her. And so then they decided to wiretap him to see if he would say it again. And uh, they did that. Um, And he did. He said the same thing all over again. He repeated it. And he said that it was planned and that they did it for her. And that the reason was because Peter supposedly raped her daughter and, you know, all of this stuff. And um, so they had that on wiretap and the wiretap was actually quite lengthy because what they wanted to be sure of was that he had his memory intact after the assault on him to be sure that you know when it went to trial that they couldn't say well he didn't know what he was talking about or you know memory loss uh, from the brain injury that he sustained in that assault and um, the wiretap um they had her ask questions like, oh, do you remember when we did this and this? And do you remember so-and-so's daughter came? And what was her name again? And he knew, like, all of that. He knew phone numbers. He remembered their dogs' names. And, you know, so they they tested him quite well to make sure that he knew what he was talking about and that he actually said that, um, 
they shot my brother three times and that the other guy cut his throat and, you know, they did it for, for her. And yeah. So then at that point, they knew that they had enough for charge approval. And uh, I think that wiretap was done in about um, May and in October of 2009, they laid first-degree murder charges against him, but not against the others. Um, because I guess in a wiretap, they can't charge the others. Um, if he Im implicates anyone else, they have to also get enough evidence on them to lay charges. So then the idea was that they were going to take him to trial, and then once he was convicted then they would use that information uh, to arrest the others as well. So um, that, that was the plan. The following is from a CBC article written by Bethany Lindsay and published on March 31st, 2019. On May 30th, 2009, the witness called Mark from a hotel room. While an undercover officer listened in, the two made small talk and chatted about mutual friends. When the conversation turned to Peter Schnellhart, the two switched to MSN Messenger, where Mark reiterated that he was responsible. I beat the fuck out of Peter, and the hitman cut his neck, Mark told her, according to a transcript of their conversation. His description of how they'd shot, beaten, and slashed Peter lined up with the forensic evidence. Mark said they'd done it because Schnellhart was accused of raping a teenager they knew. Though RCMP later spoke to the girl in question, and she said there was no rape. In the online chat with the witness, Mark said he wasn't paid for the hit, but I got to smoke crack for free. He was arrested and charged with murder in October 2009. RCMP were unable to gather enough evidence to charge anyone else in the conspiracy. So the plan was to convict Mark and hope that this would create avenues to charge the others. In the event that Mark was convicted of the murder, Petra and her family were told to prepare for a long road ahead. There could possibly be two more trials, one for the hitman and one for Tammy. Petra and her family were ready for this fight. They simply wanted justice for Peter. With the help of the RCMP, as we stated, Petra was able to get definitive proof that her brother did not assault Tammy's daughter and that it was a ruse to lead to his murder. He was arrested and charged. The RCMP told me, called and said, yeah, we have uh, charged him, first degree murder. And then I said, well, why, why did he do this? What was behind this? You know, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't come up with a good reason. And I said, well, because um, he was accused of having uh, sexually assaulted her daughter, who was 15. And I said, like, what? You gotta be kidding me. There is just no way that my brother would have ever done that. And they said, yeah, we know. And I said, how do you know? And they said, well, we went down. She had moved uh, from Alberta to Ontario with her father. And they had gone down to Ontario to interview her. And she had also said that this is not true. This did not happen. Um, and so they told me that I was supposed to keep that under my hat until the trial. <laughs> I couldn't. I, I knew where she was. And so I 
um, sent her a message on Facebook and I said, um, look at, um, did, I want you to tell me the truth. Did my brother do anything untoward towards you? And she said, no, that, that did not happen. And I said, well, where did this come from? And she didn't want to answer. And I said, I think it came from your mom. And then I said to her, who murdered my brother? And she only gave one name. And it was the hitman. She didn't talk about the one that had been arrested and charged. Of course, she didn't want to throw her mother under the bus either, you know, because uh, blood is thicker than water and, you know, all of that stuff. The RCMP felt very confident in the case that they had put together against Mark. In fact, the case was referred to as a slam dunk. The Crown prosecutor felt so confident in the case that they waived any preliminary hearings and went directly to trial. The RCMP told Petra they had 7,000 pages of evidence against Mark in regard to Peter's murder that was submitted to the Crown. This other evidence included Mark's behavior in the hours after Peter's murder. Apparently the morning of Peter's murder, Mark presented himself at the hospital in mental distress. The RCMP attended the hospital and noticed blood on his shoes. These shoes were allegedly taken into evidence. Mark later went to someone's home dressed in a hospital gown looking for drugs. The person denied him any drugs, but Mark allegedly stated he was fucked and going to prison for murder. Before the trial, it was decided that this would be a judge-only trial. The trial was scheduled to begin on October 17, 2011. This is when Petra noticed that things were not right. The first thing she noticed was that it took two years to come to trial. The second was that the trial was secretly moved to Kelowna at the last minute. The reason for this was never explained to Petra. The third thing was that the trial was only scheduled for five days, and this seems quite short for a murder-for-hire trial. When she arrived at court on October 17th, the first day of the trial, Petra felt that the whole vibe was off. There was a lot of quiet talking going on between the judge, the defense, and the crown. As the trial went on, very little of these 7,000 pages of evidence were presented. The lead investigator didn't even testify. The Crown instead focused on the wiretap and the testimony of the witness. The bloody shoes, which were alleged to have been taken into evidence, were never presented. The testimony of the person that Mark was trying to score drugs from after his visit to the hospital was not submitted, including his statements that he was, quote, fucked and going to prison for murder. The trial dates were October 17th and 19th, with a half day on October 20th, and then a full day on October 24th and 25th. The judge deliberated for just one day and made his ruling. On October 26th, 2011, five years after Peter's murder, the judge ruled for an acquittal on all charges against Mark. The judge found that due to Mark's injuries that he was not capable of incriminating himself. The judge believed that Mark had memory issues and a propensity to brag about things to impress people. Therefore, Mark's statements on the wiretap could not be trusted as evidence of guilt in the murder of Peter Schnellhart. Mark left the court that day a free man and now resides in the Lower Mainland. The Schnellhart family was devastated by this ruling, but they continued to fight. They asked the Crown and the RCMP to pursue charges against anyone else involved in Peter's murder, but they refused. They believed that the acquittal was the end of any future prosecution. 
Petra and her family wanted to understand exactly what went wrong with the trial, but due to the publication ban, they were excluded from knowing what happened. In the 11 years since the trial, Petra has corresponded with the RCMP and the Crown Prosecutor at all levels. She has been told multiple times by people in positions of power that she will never get justice for her brother. It took Petra three years to get redacted documents related to the trial. She fought to get the publication ban lifted, but has been unsuccessful. Which makes a person wonder, if Mark is not guilty, wouldn't the Crown and Defense want those documents to be open? Doesn't it prove that the legal system worked? Or is there something in the trial that they don't want the public and the family to know about? Both the Crown prosecutor and the judge retired shortly after this trial. In an act of desperation deeply rooted in injustice, Petra reached out to Bethany Lindsay at the CBC to tell her story. The RCMP thought that it was over, but it didn't feel over for me or my family because we hadn't received justice. And I thought, well, maybe she could do an article and just explain this case and uh, see if there's any other witnesses out there that might be able to bring something forward to kind of get this moving and maybe we could get some charges laid. Um, so she did that. She found it difficult because of the publication ban and because the restrictions on documents and stuff like that. Um, but she, she did a great job. And so right after that, a new witness did come forward. And this witness has uh, firsthand knowledge of what happened to my brother. And she said that she had left uh, there, Williams Lake, um, I guess not long after my brother was murdered. Um, and she said that there was, um, she thought there was so much evidence that the RCMP had that all of them would have been in jail by December. So she left and she didn't worry about it until she sees this article saying that it's unsolved. And she reads in there everything that's kind of happened and the struggles that, you know, we've gone through as a family. And so she contacted me uh, through Facebook and um, she said, you know, I've got information that I think will solve this case and bring those people to, to court and, and to prison. And I said, well, great. You know, this is wonderful. Thank you so much. And so she, she told me a, a lot about what she knew. And I thought, you know, this sounds pretty legit to me. I, I knew that she was there. I knew that she, she witnessed uh, what had gone on. After the CBC article, the RCMP contacted us and basically said, well, I don't know why you did this because, you know, we've told you that there's no justice. There's not going to be any justice. So we don't understand why you did this article. And I explained to them, well, it's over for you, but not for me. So that's why I did it, basically. So anyway, <clears throat> so then um, then I contacted the RCMP and I told them about this new witness and some of what, you know, she had told me. And I said, would you interview her? And they said, no. I said, why not? Well, because we told you that this can't go anywhere. I said, well, why not? You know, there might be new holdback evidence that you can get or new something, you know. No, I'm not going to do it. So I, I was upset and I got after them. And I said, this, this is not good. If, you know, 
I might have to go to the newspaper again here because I'm not happy with this. I think that you should at least interview her and see what she's got to say. And if there's anything there that might be useful or valid, you know, follow up on it and stuff. So um, I think it took, um, oh gosh, eight months or something. And they finally did go uh, to, to interview her. And then it was another six months or so after that, I contacted them. I said, okay, so now, now that you've got her statement, what do you think? Are you going to investigate this? And they said, no. And again, I'm going, well, why not? Well, okay, it's again because of the trial and because of the acquittal and because um, they don't have holdback evidence and because they don't think they can get crown, you know, to approve charges again. Um, and that um, the standard uh, for evidence in BC is so high that they can't meet it. And he was going on and on like that. And so then that was the, basically the fourth time that I was told that I wasn't going to get any justice for my brother's murder. So with Petra's persistence and a CBC article titled The Confession, a new witness has come forward with new information in 2019. Armed with this new information, Petra again went to the RCMP, but they refused to help her, even after interviewing the new witness. But this didn't stop Petra. She hired a lawyer to review the trial and the investigation, and this is where something very interesting happened with the RCMP. I had contacted a lawyer, and I asked the lawyer to review the trial to see what he thought. Could we do anything with it? And he said, well, there's obvious problems here. And uh, then we decided that what we should do is go to the RCMP because I've already gone to Crown and the legal system and gotten nowhere with that. And uh, we decided, well, maybe we'll just approach the RCMP again and ask them for um, their documents, the, the disclosure that they gave to Crown, like all this supposed evidence that they had and whatnot, if we could get that even some of it would be blacked out and we understood that but we you know we wanted to give it a try to see if they would give us uh anything at all um so that was um towards the end of last year 2021 and um then early this year we got a reply back from the RCMP saying no we're not going to give you any documents or any information because this case is being investigated so we're all going, hmm, this is kind of uh, weird, you know, kind of questionable because I've been told all along, all these years, 10, 10 or more years, you know, since the trial that nope, nope, nope. And now when I ask for documents, all of a sudden it's under investigation. And when it's under investigation, they're not, I guess, obligated to hand out anything if they don't want to. So um, then I said to um, to them, well, who is the investigator? I'd like to speak with him. Well, there isn't one. And this has been ongoing for six months that there hasn't been one. So I don't know what was being investigated six months ago when they didn't have anyone you know, assigned to it. Um, so then I kept the pressure on and um, I have a private investigator as well who uh, has also reviewed everything and said, well, there's obvious problems here. And uh, 
he didn't believe that there was an investigation going on either. And so with the pressure that we've kind of been putting on, they finally gave me a name of somebody that is assigned to it. And so this is just within the last two weeks. Um, and that's really all I know. I haven't spoken with him yet. He said that uh, he would give me a call, but I am still waiting. So according to the RCMP, the case that they told Petra was over is now an open investigation. However, up until a few months ago, they were unable to tell her who exactly was investigating the case. It has now been 16 years since Peter was murdered. You may be wondering, what happened to the hitman? Well, unsurprisingly, he was convicted in July 2018 of another murder, according to court documents. The hitman caused the death of the victim by striking his head with a blunt object, causing two depressed skull fractures. The circumstances in which the assault of the victim occurred were not entirely clear. There was evidence that the victim and the hitman purchased large quantities of alcohol shortly before the murder, and that the victim was, on occasion, angry and upset with the hitman over the sale of a mining claim several years earlier. There was also evidence that the victim and the hitman were sometimes friendly with one another, and that the victim had been helping the hitman move into a residence on Rosette Lake Road. What is clear is that the autopsy noted the presence of skull fragments in the brain and that a significant degree of force is required to push bones of the skull into the brain. The larger of the two depressed skull fractures was the initial blow that would have rendered the victim unconscious. The second skull fracture inevitably led to the victim's death. The victim died in the living room of the hitman's residence on Rosette Lake Road outside of Williams Lake. His blood was located spattered on the ceiling, on the walls, and under the floor in the living room of the residence. The hitman then partially dismembered the victim's body with a bladed tool and concealed his remains in a well on the same property, where it remained until it was found by the new owner of that property 19 months later. The victim's blood was also located under the head of an axe found inside the residence occupied only by the hitman. In December of 2018, the hitman received a total sentence of 11 years in prison for killing and dismembering the victim, almost six years after the crime. Outside of the courtroom in Williams Lake, the victim's family reacted to the sentence. Quote, Actually, we wish it was 10 times as much, but he didn't get away with it. That's the biggest thing. Seeing it all through the courts, it was actually a relief to see the system actually does work sometimes. One can only imagine that if the hitman had been charged and convicted of Peter's murder, that perhaps this man would still be alive. Most people will hopefully never lose a loved one to murder. So we asked Petra if she could help us to understand the impact her brother's murder and the trial had on her family. No, that's right. No, they wouldn't unless they experience it. Well, you know, basically, I think what happens is that... Um, like in my family's case, for example, um, everybody's health just kind of tanked. You know, my dad, um, he, well, he was already not well, you know, at the time that my brother was murdered. But right after that, he, it just, it, he just, it just got so bad, you know, and he uh, basically, I think after the trial, that was it. He, he didn't really want to live anymore. He couldn't understand how they could just let this guy go and let them all off on murdering their son. 
you know, who was a good guy, you know, he's a good guy. And he couldn't, he couldn't understand that. And, you know, we had immigrated to Canada from Germany. He just felt that he was such a good citizen himself that why was him and his family not being taken care of? You know, his son is murdered. And, and then my other brother, um, he, because they were so close in age, they were very close. They were, um, everything that they did, they did it together. You know, they were best buds. And uh, he ended up, uh, well, he just drank himself to death after after that. He couldn't handle it either. And so he passed away uh, in 2019. So, you know, my dad has passed away and my brother's passed away and my other brother's murdered and my mom is still alive, but her health is not good. And um, she... Sometimes I think that she tries to block it out. Like even the other day, she said, well, uh, so July the 4th is coming up. And she said, uh, so that's 15 years. And I said, no, mom, it's 16 years. So, you know, it's it's like, oh, it's just too much, right? It's too much. And so um, her health isn't good. And uh, I look after her as well. Um, and it's uh, it's just a lot. We didn't deserve any of this. You know, we haven't been treated fairly. You just feel like you've tried to do everything that you possibly can, and yet nobody wants to cooperate. Nobody wants to listen. You know, nobody wants to be open and honest or upfront. Everything is hidden. It's secret. It's They always give you just standard, oh, we're sorry for your loss. But, you know, the last letter I got from them was, well, basically, we've got nothing more to tell you. We've got nothing more to say to you. Pedra runs a website and a Facebook group in hopes of receiving tips and information that would lead to justice for her brother, Peter. We will link both the website and the Facebook group in our show notes. We want to end this episode with some of Pedra's final thoughts on her brother. He didn't deserve this, and he should be alive today. He should be enjoying life and you know, having kids and often I hear a good song and I think he would have liked that song, you know, just silly little things like that. You know, you think about all the things that he's missed out on and um, to to be murdered over false rumors. That's just so despicable. She was just jealous to be murdered just because somebody's jealous or whatever. That's just stupid, you know. We would like to thank Petra for trusting us with her family's story, and we hope that justice can be found for Peter and his loved ones. If you were in the Williams Lake area in 2006 and you have any information about Peter's murder, we hope that you will come forward by calling Crime Stoppers, the RCMP, or reaching out to Petra through her website, peterschnellhartmurder.com. As usual, we want to thank each and every one of you for joining us on this episode. Our producers on the podcast are Eloise, Yannicka, Sherry, Alexa, Urs, Donna, Dennis, Cheryl, Shelley, Kathleen, Mandy, Alicia, L.A., Vicky, Barbara, Colleen, Blair, Melanie, Alberta, Carolyn, Barbara, Shandy, Kelly, Jimmy, Shandy, Jessa, Lisa Marie, Thomas, Maureen, Lorena, Colleen B., Susan, Kennedy, and Alexandria.
We'll be back soon with a new episode. So until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.